0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to John, chapter 1. We'll be finishing out chapter 1 this morning. There are extra Bibles available in the pew, and you can find our sermon text on page 886, in the bottom right. Once you've found your place, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? We'll start reading in verse 35. Hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will, see great, even, you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your written word, for leaving us a testimony written, that reveals your Son to us sufficiently for salvation. Thank you for caring for us in our desperate need for pursuing our eternal good by leaving us these words that lead to life. Let none of them fall on deaf ears this morning, but by your mighty Spirit arrest every heart in this room with the greatness of Jesus Christ. In spite of my own Weaknesses and shortcomings. Overcome our resistance to your truth and help us see that the words of your mouth are better than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Enable us to see Jesus for who he really is, Son of God and King of Israel this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. The entire message this morning is an invitation. It is an invitation to each and every one of you to come and see Jesus, Son of God and King of Israel. In the passage we just read, the Apostle John gives us two stories of two different encounters with Jesus... In the first story, John the Baptist and two of his disciples encounter Jesus. And then one of those disciples, Andrew, brings Peter to encounter Jesus. So first story, two encounters. Then in, the sec- in, a, in a second story, Jesus encounters Philip. And then Philip cannot help but bring Nathaniel to also encounter Jesus. So two stories, two encounters with Jesus. And in both stories we find the same invitation extended to those needing a savior, namely the invitation to come and see Jesus. We see it at first in verse 39 after the disciples asks, ask, where are you staying? Jesus says, "Come and you will see." Then we see it again in verse 46 after Nathanael asks, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip says to Nathanael, come and see. What's important for us to understand is that while these are invitations for John's disciples and Nathanael in particular, they're also invitations to us who are reading this gospel. The invitations draw us into the story... ...that we too might come with these men... ...to see who this person called Jesus really is. One of the Apostle John's goals throughout his gospel... ...is to help us see... ...what he and the other disciples... ...were privileged to see. He witnessed the greatness of Jesus Christ... ...and he writes so that we might come to believe... ...in the greatness of Jesus Christ. This is why John told us in verse 14... ...the Word became flesh and dwelt among us... ...and we have seen His glory... ...glory as of the only Son from the Father. We have seen His glory. He came and dwelt among us... ...human among humans. He had places where He slept... Where the disciples could see where he was staying and could hang out with him for the day, as we saw in verse 39. They had firsthand witness of this Jesus' glory, and the rest of the the rest of this gospel is proof of the glory that John and his fellow disciples witnessed, the glory which they saw with their own eyes and touched with their own hands and looked upon, as 1 John 1.1 tells us. So it shouldn't surprise us that as soon as Jesus comes on the scene for His earthly ministry, that John the Baptist says, Behold! That means get a look at Him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then again in verse 36, Behold! The Lamb of God. And in verse 34, I have seen, John the Baptist says, I have seen and have borne witness. This is the Son of God. From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, we are being invited to see Jesus along with John the Apostle. And along with John the Baptist. And now we're being invited to come and see Jesus along with these disciples. Andrew and Peter, and Nathaniel and Philip. And this same invitation will carry us through all of Jesus' signs and wonders. The same invitation will carry us through all of Jesus' teaching, right through his passion and suffering, right up to the crucifixion, where John himself says of our bleeding Savior, He who saw it, That is, he who witnessed, who saw the crucifixion, has borne witness, his testimony is true, he knows that he's telling the truth, that you might believe. The whole of John's gospel is an invitation to come and see Jesus for who he is in all his glory. But that also means that in order to see that glory, we must first come. We must actually come and see it. So, I hope that you will accept John's invitation and come and see Jesus through what he's written this morning of these four encounters with Jesus. Now, there's a lot more we could cover this morning in these 17 verses, but I'm going to ask that you come and see at least three things about Jesus. Three things in particular about Jesus from these verses. Number one, come and see Jesus as Israel's Messiah. Come and see Jesus as Israel's Messiah. In the first story, John the Baptist, again, does exactly what God sent him to do. He bears witness about the light in order that all might believe through him. The way he does it in verse 36 is by taking his two disciples, again, and pointing them to Christ and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God. That is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is God's sacrificial provision for sinners. And when his disciples hear this, they leave John the Baptist and follow Jesus. And the text says they stayed with Jesus the rest of the day. Now what becomes obvious in verses 40 and 41 is that when these two disciples stay with Jesus, they begin to see who he truly is. That doesn't mean the disciples understood everything about Jesus right off the bat. John tells us later in his gospel that such clarity did not come for the disciples until after the resurrection and the gift of the Holy Spirit. But we can still say that that staying with Jesus had opened Andrew's eyes enough to see that Jesus wasn't just any ordinary Israelite. He was convinced that this had to be Israel's Messiah. That's what he runs to tell his brother Peter in verse 41. We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Now that little note of clarification added by John, the little phrase, which means Christ, is important. It's important because to this point, we've only heard in John's gospel, who's not the Christ, right? Back in verse 20, John the Baptist says, he's not the Christ. And then the Pharisees in verse 25 want to know why John John is baptizing folks folks, if he's not the Christ. So the lingering question is, well then who is the Christ? Andrew introduces us to him in his words to Peter. We have found the Messiah. Which John then clarifies, which means Christ. John's trying to trying to tie together the storyline for us and he's also helping all his readers both Jews and Greeks alike since this gospel was written for all people the whole world he's also helping all his readers understand that Jesus is God's anointed one that's what messiah means in the Hebrew language and what christ means in the Greek language the one who's been anointed Now, if we were to turn in our Old Testament to places like Exodus 29 and Leviticus 6, we would find that in order to set apart a priest for God's special service, they first had to be anointed. Moses was to take the anointing oil and pour it all over the priest's head. uh, and, And that act would consecrate him... ...to serve as the chosen mediator between God and His people. The people related to God through the Lord's anointed priest. And then later in our Bibles... ...the same language is used to describe... ...the act of setting apart God's chosen king... ...who would lead and represent Israel. So, for example, in 1 Samuel 16... ...God tells Samuel to fill his horn with oil... And go to Jesse and all his sons, because the Lord had provided for himself a king among those sons. And after seven sons passed by Samuel, the Lord chooses number eight, David, the unlikeliest of all of them on human terms. And the Lord says to Samuel, arise and anoint him, for this is the one, this is he. And as soon as Samuel anoints David, the scripture says the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So whether we're talking about anointing Israel's priests or Israel's king, this was God's way of saying, this one is my chosen mediator. Or this one is my chosen king in leading you. He's my anointed one. Now what's so amazing is that built into the pattern, the Old Testament pattern of this anointed one in the Old Testament is the hope that one day God would send an anointed one who far surpasses any priest or king Israel had ever known. So the pattern of anointed priests in the law anticipated one priest who would enter once for all into the holy places, not by the means of of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, the writer of Hebrews tells us. The pattern of the Lord's anointed king in the prophets anticipated one king who would sit on David's throne forever and lead the people in perfect righteousness because the spirit of the Lord would rest upon him. Isaiah 11 says that the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord would rest on this coming king until the whole earth would be full of a knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Israel never had a king like this. But the Lord promised that such a king would be coming. In fact, God's promise of a coming anointed one even shaped Israel's Worship. So, for example, in Psalm 2, we see that despite the fact that all the nations had made Israel a laughingstock, God tells the entire assembly to hope in the Lord's anointed, to look for the one whose kingly reign would cover the whole earth, and whose priestly prayers would win the nations as his inheritance. So in Psalm 2, we get a picture, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one. All the nations say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs at the nations May rage all they want, Israel, but look to your God and his anointed one. He has an anointed one. He has a Messiah. And his kingdom will surpass all other kingdoms, for it will possess the ends of the earth. And he will pray like no other priest prays, such that at his own requests, they are fulfilled infallibly, not merely for Israel alone but for all the peoples that he praised, God will make his heritage. And by the way, Israel, he'll be my son. He'll be my son. God had related to his anointed king, David, as a father relates to a son. But this only anticipated a Messiah that would actually be God's son. This was the kind of Messiah God told Israel to expect then. A chosen, priest-like king, anointed with God's spirit, set apart for Israel's salvation, sent to win the nations as his inheritance, and he will be God's own son. When Andrew says in verse 41, we have found the Messiah, he might not have had all that in mind... ...on this first encounter with Jesus. But we can be sure that's what the Apostle John wants us to see... ...by including Andrew's encounter here... ...right after God anointed Jesus with the Spirit... ...and right before Nathaniel's declaration... ...you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. This is why John wrote his Gospel. Chapter 20, verse 31 tells us... ...that these things were written... ...that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ... You might believe that Jesus is Israel's Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So look back with me at verses 32 and 34 of chapter 1 here. John the Baptist, it says, bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. Now, what's he mean there? Because John did know him to be his cousin. He means he didn't know him to be the Messiah. He knew him as his cousin. He did not know him as the Messiah. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. Think back to Isaiah 11. Spirit of counsel, the spirit of wisdom, spirit of might be upon him. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, John says, and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The same anointed Son of God of Psalm 2. John the Baptist bears witness that God had set apart his Son for this very ministry... ...by anointing him with the Holy Spirit... ...and that this Son is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. He is God's Messiah... Now look forward to me. That's we look back. Let's look forward now to verse 43. Let's look at Philip's encounter with Jesus and Nathanael. It says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And look what this encounter produces in Philip. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, a.k.a. Messiah. Right? So he's seeing the same, some of the same things that Andrew saw. By coming to Jesus, Philip has begun to see these things. That is, surely this is the anointed one that Moses ...wrote about in the law, and that the prophets said would come. Now listen to what Nathanael sees when he encounters Jesus. Nathanael said to him, "...Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" Philip said to him, "...Come and see." Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, "...Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit." Nathanael said to him, "...How do you know me?" Jesus answered him, "...Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you." Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you're the Son of God, and you're the King of Israel. And Jesus basically responds to that, bingo, you got it. You got it, Nathaniel." Or, to put it more literally, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these? So what is the first thing John wants us to see when he invites us to come to see Jesus. He wants us to see that Jesus fulfills all the expectations bound up with Israel's long-awaited Messiah... ...and the rest of the gospel will be testimony to that. What that means for us is that we cannot accept the ever-changing opinions about Jesus... ...or give in to our own assumptions about who we think he is. Seeing Jesus must be seeing him as Israel's Messiah as the fulfillment of all God's promises in the law and in the prophets of a coming deliverer. There's no other Christ to look for. There's no other priest to trust in. There's no other king to follow. There's no other savior to confide in. There's no other hope for the nations other than Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. When we place our faith in Jesus, we must treasure him for who the scriptures say he is, not for what we or the world make him out to be. And the scriptures say that he is God's Christ. That was very offensive in the preaching of the early church. The disciples were ridiculed, if you read the book of Acts, ridiculed and run off. Stephen was stoned for it and in and others were imprisoned for preaching to the Jews that they had killed their own Messiah, yet it was all part of God's plan to bring them salvation if they would only repent and believe. And it remains very offensive today. Because despite what Judaism and Islam and every other religion makes of Jesus as as merely a good man or merely a prophet or merely a moral example, the scriptures say that he alone is God's anointed king. He alone is the hope of nations. America is not the hope of nations, and it never was. Neither is Muhammad or Joseph Smith or King King. Kim Jong-un. God became a Jew in order to save the world. Salvation is from the Jews because to them belongs the Christ who who is God over all, blessed forever. So when we come to Jesus, we must see that He is Israel's Messiah if we are to be saved. He is the hope for all peoples. Number two, come and see Jesus, God's greater self revelation. Come and see Jesus, God's greater self revelation. When we come and see Jesus as Israel's Messiah, like John and Andrew and Philip and then Nathaniel all did, Jesus himself says that we'll see even greater things about him. We won't see Jesus as a mere human Messiah we'll see that he's actually a divine Messiah who reveals God supremely it is Nathaniel's faith that Jesus was the son of God and king of Israel that gives way to seeing more about who Jesus is more about the fullness of his character Jesus says because I said to you I saw you in the fig tree do you believe you will see greater things than these Nathaniel Truly, truly, I say to you, let me pause there for a minute because that you there is plural. He's not talking to only Nathanael anymore. He's talking to all his disciples. That includes us. So when you see these things like Nathanael saw them, greater things will you see. Truly, truly, I say to you, all of you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, that doesn't mean that when we come to Jesus, we get to see all kinds of heavenly visions. But it does mean that whatever heavenly things we need to know about God for salvation, Jesus reveals them to us perfectly. You see, Jesus is using language from two visions in the Old Testament, where God revealed himself. And then he's, he's taking these two visions, one from Genesis 28 and one from Daniel 7, and he's bringing them together to make one point about himself. Okay? One vision's from Genesis 28, and you might be familiar with it. Jacob, the patriarch, sees a ladder reaching up to heaven in one of his dreams. And on this ladder, angels are ascending and descending on it. And the Lord himself is standing above that place. And there, in that place, that particular place, which Jacob later calls Bethel, the house of God, God reveals his covenant faithfulness to Abraham to bless all nations through Jacob's offspring. Then, the other vision Jesus uses is that of Daniel 7.13, where we see a divine Son of Man boldly approaching the Ancient of Days, in the courtroom of heaven. And it says, To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. So, when Jesus says... ...to his disciples, you'll see heaven opened... ...and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man... ...he's saying that when we come to him as Israel's Messiah... ...we will see more than what Jacob or Daniel ever experienced... ...because he is God's greater self-revelation. There's no longer a need to gain heavenly insight... ...through visions of angels ascending and descending... ...on a ladder stretched to heaven... ...because God's own Son has come down... Yes, long ago at many times and in various ways, like visions and dreams, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He's spoken to us decisively in His Son, Jesus. What greater heavenly realities must we know when Jesus Himself is the radiance of of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature? Moreover, God's heavenly revelation of his covenant faithfulness to Abraham was no longer a mere vision. It was a reality now manifested in the person of Jesus. He is the place where God reveals himself completely for our salvation. He's the divine son of man who's beheld the face of the ancient of days for all eternity and now makes him known by coming from heaven to earth in the person of Christ. If you want to know God, Jesus is your answer. If you want insight into heavenly realities, come see the Son of Man this morning. He is God's greater self-revelation. Number three, come and see Jesus our all-knowing Savior. Now this is getting into why he came down. Come and see Jesus, our all-knowing Savior. Jesus is not only Israel's Messiah, who knows and reveals God completely. He also knows you completely. Look at verses 47 and 48 again. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. Which basically means he knew what Nathanael said about Nazareth in the previous verse. He knew that Nathanael wasn't afraid to tell Philip what he really thought about Nazareth. Then Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? How do you know me, Jesus? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Simply put, Jesus has supernatural knowledge. Because he's God. He knows us through and through. John 2.25 says that Jesus needs no one to bear witness about man to him. For he himself knows what is in man. He sees you completely. He saw Nathaniel under the fig tree... ...and he saw what you did behind your computer screen at work this week. He knows what lies you're telling others to preserve your self-image. He knows what irritations you feel... ...when you're around this brother or that sister. He sees what's motivating you at your job... He's deeply acquainted with your dissatisfaction in Him at work and He hears all your grumblings against the Lord who's just not moving fast enough. He knows what lustful thoughts permeate your mind even in corporate gatherings like this. He heard what you said under your breath about today's members meeting and saw how it revealed your lack of confidence in the power of the Gospel. He knows what your true loves are throughout the week despite despite the fact, despite despite the face you put on before others, he can name all the sins you deliberately leave unconfessed at care group and then pick apart those confessions which give enough truth to leave the real problem hidden. Remember his encounter with the Samaritan woman? When Jesus tells her, go call your husband. The woman said, I don't have a husband. That's... Partly true. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five. And the one you have now is not your husband. He knows us. He knows our deepest fears. He sees the depths of your shame before others because of something you've experienced in your past. He knows how sin has wrecked your life and how it eats away at your conscience every morning. He knows what keeps you from being vulnerable before Him in prayer. There's no escaping Jesus' immediate and perfect knowledge of you at all times, in every place. Our lives are an open book before him. But that's what's so amazing about his coming as the anointed one. Because while knowing all these things about you, he still comes for your deliverance. Knowing your lustful heart, he still comes to die for your sins and set you free from your slavery to them. Remember, he is God's Passover lamb who takes away our sin. Knowing your rebellion, he still comes to make you a citizen of his kingdom. Knowing your defeat, he still comes to conquer all your enemies. Knowing your faithlessness, he still comes to prove God's faithfulness to you. Knowing your shame, he still comes to bring you honor. Knowing Nathaniel's doubts about anything good coming out of Nazareth, he still pursues Nathaniel by sending him Philip to say, Come and see the Messiah. We could say it, summarize it in the words of Paul. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Knowing that Jesus loves is great. But knowing that Jesus knows me like this and still comes to my rescue helps me see his love for me as great. It means that his perfect knowledge of every need I have also helped design a plan of salvation to meet every need. That I have. A plan that included God's Son coming into the world as Israel's Messiah to die for sinners, rise again from the dead, and ever live for their eternal life. It's not hard to see why staying with Jesus affected the disciples the way it did. They could hardly wait to tell others about him. John tells his disciples, Andrew finds Peter. Philip finds Nathaniel. There's something about staying with Jesus that sets off a chain reaction of introducing others to him. When we come and see Jesus for who he really is, we're compelled to declare his glory to others, believers and unbelievers alike, inviting them to come again and see Jesus. So let's lay down all prideful guards, forsake our sins... And accept John's invitation this morning to come and see Jesus. He is the Son of God, the King of Israel, and sent into the world for your salvation. If you will have him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. We ask that our hope this morning as we leave would be in Christ. The Christ, your anointed one, Jesus of Nazareth. Pray that we see in him not only hope for some vague ideas of nations and peoples and languages coming to him to worship, but very specifically for us, that he came for us, for me. Drive this home, I pray as we consider Him through Your Word throughout this afternoon and into the week. In Jesus' name, amen.